I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers and just plain cool people about music. Our guest on this episode is singer-songwriter and composer Natalie Merchant. She got her start when she joined the band 10,000 Maniacs back in 1981 at age just 17, becoming the lead vocalist and primary lyricist for the band. She made seven albums with the group before setting out on a solo career, and in 1995, her debut album, Tiger Lily, was an immediate success with singles like Carnival, Wonder and Jealousy, helping the album sell over 5 million copies. She has since released nine studio albums as a solo artist, including this year's Keep Your Courage. Natalie, welcome. So good to speak with you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, Nick. So I've read that although you had piano lessons as a kid, that you'd actually never intended on being a musician until you found yourself in a band. So all of a sudden you're singing in a group and you're having to write lyrics. How did you go about that at the beginning and how did your approach evolve during your time with 10,000 Maniacs and through those seven albums? Well, when I first joined the band, I was in an advanced placement program at the local community college and I was taking an introduction to creative writing class. And the professor said, I want you to keep a journal and by the end of the semester, you'll have 100 pages written in the journal. I will never read the pages. I'll just check the number. And most of the lyrics for the first two records of 10,000 Manus came out of that journal. How did your lyrics evolve once you had moved through those, uh, those early days? Well, I'd say that The Wishing Chair and In My Tribe were my coming-of-age albums. And um, just waking up to the world and... Uh, just becoming more aware of inequities and cruelties of the world, basically, and uh, and wanting to respond to them, feeling like I had no no matter how small the platform was, I was standing on stage, and I was delivering messages to people, and I I wanted to make sure that I said something of consequence. Social commentary has always been a part of your your music. How do you choose the subjects to incorporate into your songs? I think essentially. When I, it, what it boils down to is looking at power structures, whether they're large institutional power structures or, or interpersonal relationships. I think that that's kind of the bone I've been chewing on for 40 years is how do people treat each other and um, who has the power? I think if you look at most of my songs, I'm looking at power structures. You've said that songwriting is all about patterns. Can you explain that? Yeah, that was something that came out of a conversation with one of the folklorists at the Library of Congress when I was there a couple months ago. I asked her to define folk music, and she said it's essentially a group of patterns that's shared by a social group. And she said those can be rhythmic patterns, melodic patterns, harmonic patterns. They could be movement patterns in dance. And once she told me that, I started to see like the architecture of music. And... Um, you know, understanding where different musical forms and, and styles come from and how the reason they feel familiar is that they have this underpinning that is, is the same, whether it's the chordal structure or, you know, whatever, what I just described, the rhythmic patterns and the melodic patterns. That must have been quite a revelation at this point in your songwriting. It was an epiphany because it also made me think differently about the way I write and the music that I've written. It's like, where did it come from? I think I'm just sitting at my piano and just making up music, but all the musical exposure I've had in my life is what informs 
how I come to a melodic structure. Why, why, why does this particular series of notes move me differently than another? I mentioned the beginning of your solo career in the intro, and in particular, the first two albums, Tiger Lily and Ophelia. And you've perhaps followed some different muses in your subsequent work, exploring a lot of musical terrain. You mentioned folk music, traditional music. Have those style steps deepened your appreciation of music? Oh, definitely. Especially the, um, the project Leave Your Sleep. So it was a double album. I think there were 27 songs and nearly every song is in a different style of music with a different musical group. And I really sought out people who were masters in that particular style of music. So the jazz was all done by Wynton Marsalis. Um, the klezmer stuff was the klezmatics. The Celtic stuff was the lunasau. I had an early music consort. I had a Chinese music ensemble. I had um, a chamber orchestra that was drawn from the New York Philharmonic. So I was really working with the cream of the crop and learning so much from every one of the groups that came in. They were like master classes. How do you get a hold of somebody like Wynton Marsalis or a Chinese ensemble to collaborate with you and then realize the work that you're writing? Well, I drew on a lot of previous connections. Like I had done work with Winton in the past. And um, so that was an easy phone call to make. But I ended up working with um, the Memphis Boys, who were Elvis's backup band <laughs> in the 70s. I went down to Nashville and recorded a couple set songs with them in the Fairfield Four. You know, you just have to go about it the way you, you know, you just have to contact people and say, I have this crazy idea. Do you want to be a part of it? <laughs> And I remember um, when I had the, the Fairfield Four in the studio, we were singing this, because um, it was an album all of um, poetry for children. And it was called Bleezer's Ice Cream. And it was all these crazy flavors of ice cream. And they, they didn't know what I was about. Tutti Frutti, stewed tomato, to, uh, chicken, taco, baked potato, lobster, lychee, lima bean, mozzarella, mangosteen. And... Uh, yeah, it was funny. I, I co-produced that with Andres Levine. And I remember his first session, he came in, it was a reggae band. And then the next day was an early music concert. And then two days later, we had a bluegrass band in. He was like, this is my kind of project. Was, was being a mom and having a, a, a young child a, a big part or a big influence in that direction? Yeah, it was. I wanted to expose her to all that music. And also I wanted to illustrate the poems with the music. So The King of China's Daughter, which is an old British nursery rhyme, it, it just had this really simple evocative poetry. The King of China's Daughter, so beautiful to see, with a face like yellow water, left her nutmeg tree. I skipped across the nutmeg grove, I skipped across the sea, but neither sun nor moon, my dear, has yet caught me. That's why I worked with the early music, the Chinese music ensemble. I, I just really was using music to illustrate the poetry. It was like I was making my own little anthology of poetry for children with music. I know you said in several interviews that songwriting is about expressing your emotions and communicating for you. When do you know it's time to work on a new album? And can you share the genesis of Keep Your Courage? Well, I felt like it was time to work on that album because my daughter was finally going off to college and I knew I would have the, the time and the space. And I also was doing a lot of writing during COVID because I, I wasn't doing my usual, you know, 70 hours of volunteer work that I do normally. And, and then also, you know, shuttling her around from school and 
other things. So just everything kind of stopped and I started to, it got so quiet, I could hear the inner voices again. So I started to write, which I hadn't done in six years. I don't think I'd wrote a song in six years, unless it was a preschool song, because I was working in preschool. When you take a, a sabbatical, so to speak, from... I like that, sabbatical. <laughs> coming back to writing songs again after such, a, such an extended period of time, is that muscle still there, or did you have to sort of exercise it a little bit? No, it was still there. The muscle that wasn't there was the performance muscle. I remember the first, we did five days of rehearsal, and then the first show, I had a complete crisis of confidence, thinking, I don't know how to do this. What am I, you know, I hadn't done more than two or three live shows in five per year in five years. And I just thought, what have I gotten myself into? I've got a six-month tour now. And uh, it was awful, the feelings that I was having. But then I went on stage and, and it came back. We share a mutual friend from my time in, in upstate New York, who is your, uh, your monitor engineer, I think, Dave Cook. And he was telling me a little bit about the shows and in particular, the orchestra shows. Can mm. you tell us a little bit about those? I've been doing orchestral shows since 2008 now. And actually, that was kind of the way that I was able to continue performing and be a full-time mom because those shows required less production and I would just fly in and fly out on a weekend you know because San Francisco Symphony I would just fly to San Francisco do the show and come home um I love performing with orchestras at this point I have a repertoire of 53 songs I can do with a string orchestra or full orchestra so I can do a, a full evening of music and it's, it's very moving to stand in front of an orchestra. Yeah. I mean, 40 other musicians behind you just d doing their thing. Is, yeah, sometimes is, 60, depending on the orchestra. Wow. Yeah. And once you've paid for the charts, you just send them to the orchestra wherever you're going. Right. And it's, it really is sort of like slip in and there's a whole bunch of pros right behind you doing the work. Yeah. It's a tightrope walk because you arrive in time in town and then you get a two hour rehearsal, a dinner break, and then you do the show. And it's a very precise show. There's no room for improvisation. There's no room for error. We, we always make sure we do kind of after party in the encore where we do something without the orchestra so we can breathe again. <laughs> but I've done the show so many times that it, it actually feels like I'm jamming with the band, with the orchestra. You know, it's, it's strange. And I've worked with, usually work with the same conductor and he knows the, the program inside out and we work really well together. There's a lot of wind instruments, brass and reed on this album. Um, strings, of course. And did I hear oboe? Lots of oboe. Yeah. That, that's not something you usually, uh, hear on a, on a pop record. I think the Carpenters are the only other band that I've heard use the oboe so liberally. Yeah. I love oboe. So, so writing this album, um, you brought in a number of collaborators as well. You brought in, a, a, another voice. Can you tell us a little bit about the people who, um, helped you on this record? Well, Abana Kumsen Davis does join me on two songs, singing duets, not backing vocals, you know, true duets. And I love her voice. She's phenomenal. And her, her husband, Steve Davis, wrote some horn charts. I worked with seven different composers, Stephen Barber, who I've worked with for like 25 years, and Gabriel Kahane and 
Colin Jacobson, who is part of Brooklyn Rider, and um, he and his brother founded the Orchestra of the Knights. And my, actually my violinist, who's worked with me for years, Megan, did um, a couple of beautiful arrangements for the album. So I think the fact that so many different people contributed to the, the record it, it, um, gives it far more variety. How does it feel after six years to be back in the swing of, um, I guess it's almost the old-fashioned way of doing it. You, you write a record, you record a record, and then you go and tour it. Yeah, I lived that way for about 25 years, and then I just walked away from it. So uh, it's kind of novel. The last few tours I've done, I've just done with my guitar player, and we play very intentionally, play very small venues, so it's basically a holiday. We went to England and toured for three weeks and played places like Bath and Hebden Bridge and, <laughs> you know, York and places like that. Let's jump into our, our musical questions. Okay. Um, and I am going to let you know, dear listener, that um, although this is an audio-only recording, I can see Natalie while we're doing this, and she held up a piece of paper um, that she has prepped, two pieces of paper. <laughs> she has prepped for this, so I'm looking forward to it. What is your first musical memory? My first musical memory is my grandmother, who was Sicilian, would sing me a, a lullaby. So I can remember being in her arms. So I don't know how old I was, but that's my first memory. What was the first music you bought with your own money? I bought eight tracks at the local drugstore in the closeout bins. And for some miraculous reason, they carried a lot of British music from the 70s and the mid to late 70s. So I bought all my Roxy music and my David Bowie and my Brian Eno records on eight track. And I bought them because I thought the covers were interesting. And then once I discovered an artist, I just would go back to the drugstore and, and buy more, more titles by the same artist. And they were only, I think, about $2.50. So I could buy them with my babysitting money. So why 8-track? Did somebody have a car with an 8-track player in it? Or was there an 8-track player at home? My mother gave my sister and me an 8-track player for Christmas when I was probably 13. and. Uh, that was the pathetic mode of <laughs> listening that we had because we were always, I don't know if you remember 8-tracks, they would get really wobbly and then you'd have to get a matchbook or some kind of piece of cardboard and and kind of pry it into the opening between the actual jar. It would go, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and it would switch sides in the middle of the song. The song would just suddenly dim and then the machine would go, and then the song would start again. But I, the first record I bought was Taking Tiger Mountain by Strategy, which is, I'm not trying to sound outrageously hip, but a 14-year-old girl going to a local drugstore in a small town in Western New York. And I, just the title alone, I was like, this is for me. And I actually, a few years ago, went to London and played the Jules Holland show. And I was positioned, you know how you, in, you, you do it in a circle and there's five or six artists. I had Georgia Ezra and um, St. Vincent on one side and Brian Eno on the other. Wow. It, um, I just, I couldn't help it. I went over to Brian Eno and I was like, I love you. I have always loved you. And he's like, have I met you before? <laughs> and I was like, no, you saved me. Like, and people have told that to me. You've saved me. I was, I was like a 14-year-old girl in a tiny 
cultural hinterland. And your album showed me that there was a world out there where people, um, people were, you know, had as bizarre ideas as I did. You know, I didn't feel alone when I, I, I bought those, um, rock music and, and, you know, records, Siren and Country Life. And every dream I'll take, and every step I take, <laughs> takes me further from heaven. Is there a heaven? I'd like to think so. <laughs> You're singing to us. Thank you. I appreciate it. You know, I, I look back at those early Roxy Music albums, and it was a sort of coming-of-age time for me grow, growing up in England. And I remember seeing Brian Eno on Top of the Pops playing something that looked like a, an old um, telephone switchboard, yeah. plugging chords in and everything, and uh, just being completely mind-blown. What is really amazing to me about Roxy Music is that they haven't made an album of new material since 1982, and they seem to be more vibrant than ever. Music supervisors have discovered them in the last uh, decade or so, and um, you hear a lot of Roxy music these days in, in America, which is fantastic. What was the first concert you went to without adult supervision? My first concert was actually my first date, and um, I was, I think, 13, and I went to see the Grand Illusion Tour 6 at the Buffalo Auditorium. Now, I read somewhere that you were kind of scared. I was. When you got in there. Yeah, people were drinking and smoking cigarettes. And it was, I'd never been in a room with that many people before. It was a giant auditorium. And it was a big city. And I came from a very small, you know, there were 2,000 people in the town I was living in. I was living in Westfield, New York. And yeah, it was all pretty um, awe-inspiring. What do you listen to when you want to dance? I tend to listen to R&B, soul, Motown. What do you listen to when you're feeling sad? When I'm feeling sad, I get to work. I sit down at the piano and I sort of work through it myself. So I don't tend to listen to music when I'm sad. I make music when I'm sad. And maybe that's why I have so many sad songs on my album. So you pour it out into your work. Yeah, and then it dissipates. And, and I feel like, well, if I'm going to be miserable, at least I'm going to be productive. Yeah. If you could only hear one song for the rest of your life, what would you pick? You know, it's probably an unlikely choice, but um, Lost Cause by Beck. I'm just thinking of the lyrics in my head. It, it's basically about the end of a relationship, isn't it? Yeah, but there's something about the tone of his voice. It's not even what he's saying um, that just sort of puts me into a certain state that I wouldn't mind being in for the rest of my life. <laughs> it's a beautiful song. Um, do you have a favorite music video and why? I mean, you came of age at the time when people were still making music videos. Well, people still do, but they're a lot cheaper these days and people don't see them as much, I don't think. But do you have a favorite music video? Well, when I saw that question on the questionnaire, um, I had to give that thought. It's a, I, and I realized that um, MTV started in 1980. And in 1981, um, David Byrne and the Talking Heads made the video for um, Letting Your Days Go By. And then blank, blank on the title of the song. Oh, Once, once in, in a, a lifetime. lifetime. Yeah. yeah. Once in a Lifetime. Which it was such a new format, the music video, and that David Byrne was able to completely transform this emerging form of entertainment or, you know, 
what was going on in his head was inventing those dances he was doing and that kind of appear like the persona that he was playing, which was somewhere between Hazel Motes and Robert Oppenheimer, and he was just all covered in sweat. And it just seemed more like a piece of performance art than a music video. You know, when you compare it to other things that were on at the time, like I think Journey's Don't Stop Believing was out at the same time. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know. It, and it seemed like he was delivering this message that I was open to hear. And it was just all about, I mean, all the, the early Talking Heads records seemed about how confounding and irrational our modern lives are. And uh, the kind of, you know, in, insanity inducing almost. And that I felt David Byrne was reacting to it and responding to it in a really subversive and way by making this extremely intellectual yet danceable art. It, I, I, and he has continued to be a trailblazing artist and you know, everything he does. You're always interested in what David Byrne is up to. He's, he's another artist who is having um, a, a renaissance, I, I guess. I mean, he's always been making art, but it would seem that in the last half a dozen years or so, he's really sort of been elevated to uh, a place of reverence, I think. Have you ever worked with him or would you ever want to work with him? I have worked with David. I met him years ago because I'm really good friends with um, Yael Evelov, who, who started Walkabout Records with him. And uh, David sang with us on MTV Unplugged, so that's going back to 92 or 93. And then he asked me to sing on the Here Lies Love album. Um, when he, you know, before he, he launched the off-Broadway version of it, now it's on Broadway, but when yeah. he did the off-Broadway, before he did the off-Broadway version, he had, he curated all these female vocalists to sing the songs. So I worked with them on that. So, yeah, on and off over the years, we've come in and out of touch. Do you have a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, maybe not, not so much a, a, like a recorded musical discovery, but an experiential one. I went to, I don't know if you know who Bill Vanover is. Do you remember him from The I Neighborhood? Don't. Bill Vanover's been um, for 50 years. He's been this incredible um, folk musician who studies a lot of Eastern European um, music and dance and American forms of, of American. Uh, folk music, but it was his 80th birthday on Sunday. And I went to his birthday party and it was extraordinary because it was just in this beautiful orchard in upstate New York. And Jay Younger and Molly Mason were there and Martin and Eliza McCarthy and Lisa Gutkin from the Klezmatics. And it was just everyone that was at the party was either a dancer or a musician. And everyone got up one at a time to do a musical tribute and uh, sing a song or perform a dance for Bill. And it just felt like this amazing, an amazing tribute to this life of, of making music and building community. And it was into, into it was multi, it was multi um, generational. So that was exciting to see all these people of different ages just sharing music and some of it was old time, so it was bluegrass, some of it was Balkan. They, it was even someone did swing. And when it was, I got called up 
And I did a Marlene Dietrich song, Go See What the Boys Do. We'll have, go see what the boys in the back room will have. And tell them I'm having the same. Go see what the boys in the back room will have. And give them the poison they need. <laughs> now, I'm told that you've been known to break out into that a little bit in live shows sometimes. Yeah. I love singing old 40s songs, 30s and 40s songs, acapella. That party sounds fabulous. I mean, first of all, for the celebration of Phil's life and the other musicians and other artists who were there. But I'm just imagining from my own time in upstate New York, uh, an afternoon, a little bit of Indian summer outdoors in, in an orchard. It must have been quite a, quite a day. I just felt really lucky to be part of that community. And uh, I'm so glad COVID is... You know, there's a bit of COVID going on right now, but at least we can we can gather and we yeah. can sing and dance. And I don't take it for granted. Those were dark years. Yeah, I was going to ask you, I mean, what kind of impact did that have on you? I mean, we were all locked in for at least a year, some of us longer. You were in a, a rural area, uh, which I'm guessing made it even more difficult. But what were those years like for you stuck at home? Well, I don't know if you can see the scar that goes across my half my neck. I had um, spinal surgery the week before the lockdown. Oh, wow. So I was um, in a neck brace for the first couple of months and I was high risk and I didn't have any follow-up appointments with my surgeon. I had no physical therapy. So it was another layer of um, fear in my lockdown. I, I was happy I didn't have to... Um, I wasn't a first responder. I wasn't somebody that had to be out there in the world because I, I couldn't, couldn't be out there. Mm. One of my best friends is a, a midwife, and uh, she's still so traumatized because people did not stop having babies. So she right. risked life five, six days a week to go and help women have babies. During the whole pandemic, it never stopped. It's hard to think about it now. We skipped on past it, but there are people who were devastated, families that were devastated by COVID and first responders like your friend who uh, really had no choice but to be out on mm -hmm. the front lines. And um, yeah, I hope people remain grateful for that. Yeah, a lot of invisible heroism went on in this country in the first, definitely before we had the vaccine. We didn't have the vaccine for almost a year. Yeah. And most of us didn't get it until over a year into it. Do you have an, a band or an artist whose music you love, but feel that they perhaps never quite got the break they deserved? I would say Cattell Koenig. I think her first album, her debut album of Seasons of Castles was an absolute genius. And uh, her second album, Jet, was equally brilliant. And I recorded her song, Gulf of Air, Beyond My Live album in 99. And she's been a friend of mine since the late 80s. I just um, think she's a phenomenal poet, great singer, incredible songwriter. I do know her work, and, and I agree. That first album in particular is stunning. Do you have a musical guilty pleasure? Yes, I do. I love to watch the audition reels for Britain's Got Talent. I especially like it when the mousy little menopausal women in the cardigans come in from the provincial towns and um, Simon Call is all snarky with them and kind of ridicules them in his way. And then they open their mouths and it's like the ghost of Maria Callas is laughing and soaring out. Right. 
or Aretha Franklin, whatever. And um, the most unlikely people. And I love the auditions. I never watched the actual show. I just watched the reels of the auditions because once they get in the hands of the handlers, yeah, and they you know make them up and you know get them suited up with a stylist, it, and they become self conscious. Yeah, it's like, and what's your name? My name's Simon. Where are you from? I'm from Gates. <laughs> what do you do, Simon? I stay in the basement playing video games primarily. <laughs> and then he starts singing some Italian aria and everybody's jaws just drop. Love smacked. Yeah. That's a yeah. good one. And and my final question, how are you feeling right now? Right now I'm feeling very excited. Um, I've got a lot of projects going on right now and um, I tend to be kind of a marathon runner. I like the endurance of it, having lots of work. Um, I got appointed to a board on, on the Library of Congress of the American Folklife Center. I'm really excited about the work that they're doing. I'm doing a project collaborating with the, the Chicago Symphony and the Chicago Children's Theater. And I also have a project that I've been working on for six years in Italy, which was interrupted by COVID. And I'm just about to go back on tour. So it just feels like it's a really fruitful, busy time. And I'm kind of thriving in it. Thank you so much for uh, for taking taking the time. I've been a big fan for uh, a long time, and we sort of were in the same neighborhood upstate there for a few years. Yeah, I used to listen to you on the radio when you were on DSP many moons ago. Yeah, many moons have waxed and waned since then. It's, it's great to see you. Thank you so much, Natalie. Thank you, Nick. The Sound of Success is hosted and produced by myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple, sparknetwork.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>